1 Samuel 1. I will read the whole of this. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The, the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to revoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you be, go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman, troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated.
Why did J.R.R. Tolkien select hobbits to be the main characters of his epic, The Lord of the Rings? If you have not read these books, then you ought to. But however, hobbits would be seemingly the last race to create in order to create an epic adventure. In Tolkien's famous preface concerning hobbits, he says, Hobbits are a little people. And that hobbits had, in fact, lived quietly in Middle-earth for some long years before any other folk became even aware of them. These little people seemed of little importance. Why would he start with these beings, then, and bring them to the foreground as main characters in this great story? The same reason that God, before Tolkien started his adventure epic in the book of Samuel, starts with Hannah. Tolkien was of the opinion that history is not made or broken by the great people, but by the small, honest, hard-working people who do the right thing over and over, so says Tolkien. Such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere than on those ostensibly small deeds." Hobbits represent those people who didn't want to be historic, but history found them all the same, and we are grateful that God thrust them into that role. That is, Tolkien took up the scriptural way of history, highlighting the faithful acts of little people who truly move history. Scripture starts the epic of history of Israel's rise into a world power, with Hannah, the barren second wife of an isolated, mountain-dwelling family. And God doesn't just mention her, he gives her a chapter and a half and a song of prophecy that will define the entire age of First and Second Samuel. But up until this point in Israelite history, Israel had been what might be called a confederacy, distinct peoples who lived distinct governmental lives, among distinct tribes, like 12 different nations that were allied with common laws and common obligations to one another. And this was because they were bound together, not only as an ancient family, that is the 12 sons of Israel, but by God and the agreements between one another. We see this happening through the book of Judges, where Israel is not ruled by any one ruler, but but they are ruled by God himself, But a judge decides between all of the tribes and their different interests and disputes. And where are all these interests decided? They are ultimately decided by God, which ought to make Shiloh, the place of God's tabernacle at this time and the time of the judges, the most important place in all of Israel at the start of 1 Samuel. It ought to be. But at our time, the tabernacle was under the rule of debaucherous men. And the judges no longer truly judged, but chaos and wickedness seemingly reigned, even more than the time of Ruth. And we start our story not far from the tabernacle here in Shiloh. We start at Ramathiam Zophim, otherwise in scripture known as Ramah, as in verse 19 in this chapter, which is just south of Shiloh and just north of Jerusalem. We meet here a certain man named Elkanah who by his name, birth, and place of residence seems to be a Levite living legitimately in Ephraim. Levites had cities uh, that they they lived in in the tribes of, of other than Levi. They could live in those places. This pious man had, strangely, two wives, 
even though he was pious. Hannah and Peninnah, as God tells us and shows some of the chaos of the judges' time. But God tells us Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Just as we learned with Naomi and Ruth, barrenness is one of the greatest sufferings that a woman can suffer in this life. But Hannah's sufferings were not over. We are introduced to them as we are coming to the most destitute of this time. Hannah's sufferings are not over, for Elkanah goes up to Shiloh every year to sacrifice the Lord of armies. He does this even when, verse 3, Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. And we'll find these are horribly debauched priests. The corruption, which we saw in Judges and the people of Israel and the surrounding world and Ruth, has finally reached the sanctuary of God. This is a bad time in Israelite history. As Leviticus has shown us, this requires God's action. This requires God's judgment if they do not repent. These priests deserve death at God's hand, an immediate death. And yet there are still people like Elkanah who go to the temple regularly. They go to the tabernacle and sacrifice there. The religion of God, of Yahweh, is not dead. So great is mercy and love, God would not leave his people without a hope as well. So he did not immediately kill Eli, Hophni, or Phinehas. So we start with his plan for hope. First for Hannah, then second for Israel, and third the entire world. So first, Hannah humbly asks, and Hannah receives a hoped-for son. Hannah's suffering increases, yes, with the insults and provocation of her rival Peninnah. Brothers, polygamy helps no one. Rachel and Leah, the two wives of Israel's progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel, were driven into what seems like madness as well, seeking for children to rival one another. Here in 1 Samuel, we see the same effects of this horrible practice of polygamy. The same horrible situation for poor Hannah, and also what's just as bad, the position of Peninnah, who was seemingly loved less by her husband. It's a horrible thing to consider. Yet it was, verse 6, the Lord who had brought this about for Hannah, that is, who had closed her womb. So that year after year, there were no children. And despite her husband's encouragement in verse 8, Why do you weep, Hannah? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Hannah goes on her own, in her own grief, to God himself in the temple, or tabernacle. She runs alone to the tabernacle, weeping. There in this story, to receive her, is our next character, Eli the priest, father of the wicked priests, Hophni and Phinehas. He is around 90 years of age at this time and far too old to be a priest. Again, priests serve from about 25 years of age to 50 years of age. And too old to judge, or at least in his own mind, for he was a loafer and a sluggard as a judge. So he loiters around the entrance of the tabernacle here. Eli watches Hannah come in, weeping and in distress, and she prays to the Lord, verse 13, by speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, her voice was not heard. Her prayer was fervent, and it was silent, specific, and contained a strict vow. This is what it was in verse 11. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, 
Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. To Hannah's credit here, she did not pray for anything against Peninnah, for her rival who insulted her. Our prayers ought not to be for the harm of other people unless we have extraordinary godlike certainty that they are reprobate. No, Hannah prays instead for what she fervently desires. She asks for a son. She asks, however, with a vow that must be explained. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As to say, he will be in the Lord's service far beyond the Levitical prescriptions, that is, to 50 years old, and he will be a Nazarite. The Nazarite vow is to be set apart by God for a holy, specific purpose, and therefore had certain conditions. First, don't go near any dead body, even the dead body of your own relative. Second, never shave your own head. And third, never drink alcohol or eat any produce of the grape. This shows the severity of the Nazarite vow. It was to be so holy and set apart by God that even our most beloved ties on earth, if God should require it, should take a back seat to the solemn vows of God, to God. That is, if someone in our family died, we could not come near to their funeral as a Nazarite. Usually these were temporary things, but in this vow, it would to be perpetual. When Nazarites come along in Israelite history, they are considered a special work of the Lord in the people. Amos 2, 11 through 12 says this, where he connects, as if it were just as important, the rising of the Nazarites to the rising of the prophets among them. It is for this reason that God grants Hannah's request. God will do a special work in this baby of Hannah's. Hannah's baby will be consecrated for God's service from before he is even conceived in his mother's womb. He is to be a prophet who speaks for God against kings and a king maker. Part of God's plan of even larger hope than simply for Hannah but hope for all Israel to be a king maker and not simply the son of Hannah. But Eli thinks that Hannah's fervent prayer and vow are the ramblings of a drunken woman, and he rebukes her. This is deeply ironic in the story, as we'll come to find, because Eli had something like 70 years to rebuke his own sons for highly immoral behavior, as we'll find, And yet he rebukes this barren woman who is praying before the Lord in the tabernacle. This shows the state of Eli's heart, but also the state of the nation. He expects drunkenness, even at the tabernacle. Verse 15, however, Hannah rightly defends herself. She says, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. What a wonderful way of describing prayer, fervent prayer, which is really the focus of 1 Samuel 1. Out of great anxiety and vexation, she speaks out, calling herself a worthless woman, pouring out her soul before the Lord. Pious religion toward the Lord has not yet died out at this time, even with these wicked priests. Eli then gives a fervent hope that the Lord will answer her prayer, and she goes away happier. These are all good things. 
Soon after, we're told in verses 19 through 20, she has a son by Elkanah, for the Lord remembered her, that is, gave her blessing according with her asking. And Hannah calls him Samuel, which means asked of God. For she says, I have asked for him from the Lord. In fact, this word used for Samuel's name is the key word of 1 Samuel 1. And it's said four times in the last two verses alone. Hannah asked and she received. The problem, however, with asking and receiving is what we must do with the thing that we receive. Hannah's example is more explicitly obliging to God in her request as she vowed a vow to God. But all Christians have vowed before God to honor him with what he gives us as we are his servants. You can tell that fulfilling her vow according to God's answer to prayer will be difficult for Hannah. Knowing that Hannah wants to be with her only boy, Elkanah says, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. Elkanah prays for not only the child to grow old enough to come into the tabernacle, but for Hannah to take her vow to God seriously. The Lord will establish his word, whether we like it or not. Hannah does what she promises, however, and brings the now weaned Samuel, which the to the Hebrews, the weaning meant about three years old, to Shiloh and consecrates his service to the Lord with sacrifices. Let us learn from this, brothers and sisters, that God answers prayer, yes, even miraculously. Also, if we have vowed, we must keep our vow like our membership vows, for God will bless or curse in his fatherly love according to them. We must not forget our vows, brothers and sisters. He will bless and curse according to them. Let us be careful to keep our vows like Hannah. But the real focus of this passage, as we continue on, is what God is doing in all of this. God works through the small prayers of his people for great things. He even works through the small prayers of his people in ways that they would never have expected. This is what I mean. Hannah did not pray for Israel to rise again out of the ashes of their own wickedness, for God to bless them with a king, a temple, and for hundreds of years of prosperity. Hannah humbly asks and receives far more than she hopes for. This is our second section. Hannah humbly asks and she receives far more than she hopes for. A king from the king maker, her son, a king, a son after God's own heart, the hope of Israel. Hannah asked for a son. However, as we see in Second Samuel, uh, or rather First Samuel two, God gave far more than this: not only a son, but two more sons and two more daughters, as the next chapter tells us, and not only children, but a kingdom in her lifetime. Certainly, God can give far more than we ask or think, brothers and sisters, and we ought to be encouraged by this. We ought to ask the Lord specific prayers like Hannah, but expect better answers than even our prayers asked for. Why? Why does he work in this way? Because God cares for the Hannahs, the Ruths, and the Naomis. He cares especially for the barren and the destitute. He may not always bring children to the barren, but he has often done so 
And this is the consistent theme in Scripture. His love is such that he hears the helpless and he remembers the barren. For those who rely upon him and put their faith in him, no prayer is too small. No asking is too small. But he has often done so. And this is a consistent theme in Scripture. His love is such that he hears the helpless. He remembers the barren. But this is what we are to be. We are to be like Hannah. Hannah is what even Israelite kings ought to be, askers of God. Even Samuel's name, something akin, again, to asked of God, points Israel to ask of God. You do not have because you do not ask, says James too. But James, in the very next verse, also says, when you do ask and do not receive, it is because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We must ask of God, but when we ask of God, we must not ask to get our own blessings that we desire in the way that we desire them, but to get what God desires. That is, we connive and scheme to get out of God what we desire because we think that God does not desire our good. We define good as what our passions desire, but hear what Jesus says about our asking. John sixteen twenty four. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Let us learn, brothers and sisters, giving something unto God is not losing it. Asking of the Lord something and getting what he gives us is not losing what we desire. We so often think that if we were to give to God our entire lives, then our lives would be misery and we would waste away for lack of our favorite sins or our desires becoming unfulfilled. All lies, brothers and sisters. In this story, Hannah, although in the background for the rest of 1 Samuel, is ever-present. She brings Samuel shirts and gifts on her journeys to Shiloh, as we'll see next chapter. And during 1 Samuel, we find that Samuel has taken residence in Ramah. And he lives, works, and dies there among his family. He is close to his mother until the end. Fulfill your legitimate vows to God. Do as he asks. Ask of him, for he will give what is good. His gifts are always good. And from this gift of Hannah, Israel gained David, their savior of that time. And as we continue on to the third section, Hannah humbly asks and receives the eternal son, the king of all, and the hope of the world. We must realize with Hannah that God's plan extends far beyond our merely singular blessings in our prayers. Yes, he answers our prayers, but he answers prayers to bless all of his people, even in our own prayers. The specific prayer is momentous because God used it to bring about a man of great import. And it's significant to note that the books of Samuel begin and end with prayer. First Samuel here, for Samuel 1, the prayer of Hannah, and Second Samuel 22, David's prayer of thanksgiving for the rest and deliverance which God has given him from his enemies around. This prayer starts the book of Samuel, and it is from the destitute, and the last prayer is from the king himself. Two prayers to be at each end of Samuel. Of course, first and second Samuel were originally one book. One prayer at the beginning and one at the end. 
each through prayer recognize their place as Israel to be askers, not demanders of God, to be askers of God and not to be manipulators of God. Prayer, if it is true prayer, has this character, to ask of God. That is, prayer is a practical acknowledgement of our utter dependence upon him for the sake of his own glory. And although the kingdom of God and the theocracy to come will ultimately collapse, that is, David's kingdom will ultimately collapse and be exiled, as we saw if you were here for the sermon series on Lamentations, Indeed, it collapsed. Hannah's prayer for a son was answered in ways she never expected for a kingdom that will never collapse. Samuel was not only the kingmaker of his own generation, not only the prophet of prophets, and not only the last judge, but was the blueprint for the kingmaker to come. There was another who was consecrated to God as a Nazarite before his birth. There was a future man who was born through the prayers of a barren woman, There was a Jew who was a prophet, born a prophet beyond all others of his time. And there was another king maker who was to consecrate the new king, John the Baptist. This man was necessary to bring in Christ's kingdom. For God's kingdom, there must be a king maker. For God will speak for himself through his prophet, which king he desires, as we will find out in 1 Samuel as well and will not leave it up to chance or to people's opinion. So Samuel, the kingmaker, will anoint David for kingship, but John, the kingmaker, will baptize Jesus for eternal kingship as the God-man. So that not only in the Old Testament, but much more in the New Testament, God knows how to answer prayer. He answers our prayers and all our hopes in Jesus Christ. He may indeed and has in the past answered our prayer. He may even answer, be answering our prayers before we end our prayer, as Isaiah 65, 24 says. Or perhaps he is waiting for when we are able to receive the blessing rightly, not to spend it upon our passions. Or perhaps he is waiting to bring it about for even more blessing, as with Hannah and Habakkuk 2.3. But we can be sure of this. In Christ, all of our promises and our prayers are yes and amen in him. That is, through Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That thing for which we did not even ask for, to be in the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ secured for us far more than we could ever even hoped to ask an eternity of blessing. When we are with him, we will not wonder why he did not answer our prayers in the way that we desired. We will understand and we will rejoice. When we are with him, we will understand why he answered them in the way that he did when he answered them the way that we desired. When we are with him, our prayers will be fully answered, however. History is made by the humble hobbit-like Hannah, who begs and asks of the Lord, For our hopes are never disappointed in him. And I must say, prayer makes the destitute more powerful than the man with codes to atomic bombs. The one who asks of God and he gives out of his love is one who is very powerful. The other desires to be God. That is, the man who desires great political power, who desires to be God. And God will not allow him to use that power. But history is made by the humble hobbit-like Hannahs. 
Strange as it may seem, he is better than ten sons, Jesus Christ. And on that hope-for day, the day which we are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we shall see him. And at the revelation of Jesus Christ, all our hopes will be yes and amen. For in him, through faith, is reconciliation, love, forgiveness of sin, and blessing that not 1,000 sons could buy. Let us seek from and humbly ask for that great day in humility, like our hero hobbit Hannah. And let us go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have blessed us, small people that we are. Lord, we, we ask forgiveness that we have not come to you in prayer. Lord, that we have often decided to do things in our own strength. Lord, that we have decided to curse our rivals. We have decided to be a people who looks no different than the world because we are dependent upon no one else but ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you would convict us of those sins. That, Lord, instead of our own intellect or our own strength, that we would trust in you, trust in your providence, trust in your answers to prayer. For, Lord, you have done far more than we could ask or think. You have done so with Hannah. You have done so in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you have done so in our life as well. We pray, Lord, that in our vows, which we take before you, that we would take them seriously, for you give us good gifts, especially your Son. We pray, Lord, that you would indeed come soon. And, Lord, we ask of this fervently. We pray, Lord, all these things. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.